thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Coming up this week, new flu. Scientists in Hong Kong have found signs that swine flu is mutating and it could spawn a fresh pandemic. We'll find out how. Also, evidence for why females might suffer more from the effects of stress than males. It's down to how the brain handles certain chemically uh, important neurotransmitters differently between the two sexes. And bomb-proof curtains. Scientists have found a way to make a weavable material that gets fatter when you stretch it, and that can be used to soak up explosions. Could come in handy in my house. Hello, I'm Chris Smith. Welcome to this week's Naked Scientists. And also joining me this week is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Also this week, we're taking a look at the science of the very small to find out how nanotechnology holds the key to building better batteries and an improved way to store large amounts of hydrogen safely. This is important if we want to use it as a clean fuel to power cars, for instance, in the future. Chris. Sarah, thank you. Also on the way, we have this canine conundrum. Hi, I'm Tom from Wales, and I'd like to know why dogs can't watch old-style CRT TVs and can they watch newer TVs like plasmas or LCDs? So does your dog watch the telly? Diana's got the answer for you in Question of the Week. It's coming up. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. And uh, we're kicking off this week with a look at the science that's been making headlines around the world, uh, as we usually do. And uh, first up this week is information from the journal Science that uh, researchers at Hong Kong University, Dana Sekram Vijakrishna and colleagues, have discovered evidence that swine flu is flexing its microbial muscles and tooling up perhaps to spawn a fresh pandemic. This group have been monitoring pigs that are being sent to an abattoir for slaughter to see if they have any traces of flu when they arrive. And in the last about 13 months, they've picked up 32 cases of flu amongst these pigs, many of them the classical swine flu, which has been circulating in pigs for a very long time. But also, in January of this year, they found a strain of flu which is in fact derived from human swine flu, in other words, the pandemic strain, indicating that human flu had got back into these pigs. But here's the catch. The strain of virus they detected had actually mixed its genes up with the normal pig flu virus. So this is an entirely fresh form of potential pandemic virus. Now, the researchers were able to show that it can spread from one pig to another. It is infectious. It does cause a trivial illness in these pigs. But what they're saying is that this is clear evidence that this virus is very good at mixing and matching its genes with other viruses and that pigs are a very good way 
to make that happen because pigs can get infected with both human flus and their own flus and they enable viruses to what's called reassort, mix their genes up between the two different viral strains and therefore potentially produce pandemic strains of virus that can then affect us humans. Uh, the bottom line behind this study is we need more surveillance. Given how easy this seems to have been to detect, it must be happening a lot, say the scientists, and therefore we need to be looking for it in order to make sure that we're not missing a trick and missing the next pandemic when it comes along. Sarah. Well, also this week, a team of scientists have shown that one of the deadliest strains of malaria travelled with early humans as they left Africa and colonised Asia. The current understanding is that modern humans evolved in the Afar region of Ethiopia and about 55,000 years ago they began to migrate out of Africa to colonise what is now Europe and Asia. The paper published in Current Biology describes that there's a decline in the genetic diversity of the populations of Plasmodium falciparum as you move further away from sub-Saharan Africa. The team collected blood from individuals infected with falciparum from countries in Africa to Southeast Asia and South America. And because Plasmodium falciparum only infects humans, it can only have been transported out of Africa via humans. The team compared the genetic diversity of the parasite with the timing of migrations out of Africa. It's already well documented that the genetic diversity of human populations decreases as you move further away from sub-Saharan sub Africa excuse me, because people have simply been there for less time and there's been less time for new mutations to arise. The team found that the genetic diversity of the parasite decreased with distance in exactly the same way and the age estimates for the parasites fitted with the parasite accompanying the early migrating humans – with the exception, interestingly, of South America, where the results pointed to a much more recent invasion of the parasite, which they think was probably to do with the slave trade. And why do we think that this is important? Because we already know how humans migrated around the planet for the reasons you gave, which we can look at the genetic diversity of the people and also the bugs they carry, H. pylori, something we talked about on the show previously, the bacteria in the stomach. As you go for populations that have taken longer to get to where they have ended up, having left Africa, the diversity of the genes in those people and those parasites are lower? Well, the genetic diversity of the malaria parasite, like a lot of pathogens, the diversity plays a really important role in how dangerous it is to people. So knowing more about the global diversity of Plasmodium falciparum can help us to find better ways to fight it, which, given that falciparum is actually the most dangerous strain of malaria, is a very good thing. Yeah, 541 million cases a year, I think, is the, the current global disease burden caused by malaria. So that's very interesting to think that you might be able to see aspects of the parasite genetically by doing these sorts of studies that might hold the key to the next generation of drugs. Thank you, Sarah. Well, talking about parasites and things that cause us to be ill, there's a very interesting paper which has been published in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week. It's by researchers at City of Hope, which is a research institution in California, David Giugisto and his colleagues. And they have been looking at the question of HIV, talking about pandemics, and uh, probably the worst pandemic we've ever faced is HIV. 7,000 new infections with HIV happening every single day, 7,000 deaths from HIV, give or take, every single day. It's an important global health problem. We've got drugs for HIV, antiretrovirals. The problem with them is, is that although they're very good at reducing the amount of virus in the bloodstream and therefore helping to keep people who are infected with HIV healthy for a long time, 
The major problem is that the virus has another trick up its sleeve. It inserts a copy of its genetic material into the host's DNA. So even though someone may have very low levels of virus in their bloodstream, lurking inside their DNA is the genetic message for the virus, which can very easily come back out and produce new virus particles. And trying to get at that virus is impossible because it's part of you. So what the researchers now think is that we actually need a way to target the virus genetically. And so there's this school of thought that we need to create what are known as genetic medicines that will target this what's known as a pro-virus hiding inside our genome. What this group have done in California is to do one of the first trials of a successful technique that might just do that. They took patients who had HIV, they took white blood cells, stem cells from these patients, and in the dish they added to those cells genes which are known to make it more difficult for HIV to grow. So genes that either turn off the virus or act as decoys to stop some of the virus particles that, that are made during infection from being assembled into a mature virus. Once they knew that those cells had been transduced in this way, so in other words they could make these antiviral genes, they then put those cells back into the patients and followed them up. And two years after they began following them up, most of these seven patients have still got detectable cells making these messages in their bloodstream. And this shows you can safely transduce blood cells and put them into an antiviral state so they are better able to defend themselves from getting infected with HIV via this sort of technique. This is only an initial step, therefore it's very preliminary, but it does mean that we now know where to start and the next step will be to do a much bigger trial, putting many more cells into people like this and then following them up to see if the modified cells really do translate into a, a biological effect. In other words, the person is defending themselves better against HIV rather than it progressively damaging their immune system, which is what eventually causes AIDS. Sarah. Well, uh, another interesting story this week has come from researchers in Philadelphia who found that there's a difference at the molecular level between how male and female brains deal with a particular stress stress hormone, which could explain why women are more prone to stress or anxiety-related illnesses like post-traumatic stress disorder and depression. The study, published in the journal Molecular Psychiatry by Deborah Bangasser and her colleagues, compared the brains of male and female rats in stressed and unstressed situations. They measured the activity in the brain cells using electrodes and also took samples of the brain tissue to look for specific proteins. The stress hormone they were looking at is called corticotropic releasing factor, or CRF, and it's produced in a region of the brain called the hypothalamus. It plays a key role in stress, along with hormones from an area in the brainstem called the locus ceruleus. Activation of the locus ceruleus and the hypothalamus by a stressful stimulus or situation leads to the production of other hormones like adrenaline that can lead to many of the symptoms of stress disorders like sleeplessness and inability to concentrate. The team found that the female rats were much more sensitive to the CRF than the male rats, meaning that they would be more likely to react to a stressful situation than a male rat would be but they were also less able to deal with high levels of CRF. The males could lock it away in little sacs in the brain cells called vesicles, and this allowed them to adapt to the higher levels of CRF, but the females couldn't adapt and would continuously show the stress response. So what does this mean in a wider context? Well, this is only a study in rats. It may not translate directly to humans, but it does offer us a pretty good model. What's interesting is that because we now know that the CRF receptors in males and females 
brains differ and we know how they respond to the CRF, which means this could open up new avenues of research for drugs to treat things like depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. It also means that we may need to start looking at treating males and females with these disorders in a different way. Does this mirror what we see in humans? Are, are women generally perceived to be more vulnerable to prolonged stress than men are? It does seem that a higher proportion of the people who seek treatment for depression are women. So it, it does look like it does correlate with what we see in humans. Thank you very much, Sarah. Well, also in the news this week, um, a new type of material, one that gets thicker rather than thinner when you stretch it, this is called an auxetic material, is being developed by EPSRC-funded researchers, and they're trying to provide better protection from the effects of bomb explosions. Jane Reck spoke to the inventors, who are based at Exeter University. In this research laboratory, cutting-edge science and technology is getting a helping hand from an old-fashioned machine, a traditional craft loom. But instead of weaving cotton for clothing, it's making a completely new type of fabric. It's a material that will give much better protection from the effects of bomb explosions and severe weather events such as typhoons and hurricanes. The project uses auxetic materials and is led by Professor Ken Evans at the University of Exeter. An auxetic material is unusual in that it's a material which, when you pull it, does something that you would not normally expect. If you imagine pulling a rubber band, two things obviously happen when you pull it. It gets longer, and at the same time it gets thinner. And this is a very easy thing to see with a piece of rubber. But that's, in fact, the case with any material. If you could pull a piece of steel, you would find it was getting thinner as it was getting longer. Auxetic materials do exactly the opposite. When you pull them, they get longer, but at the same time they get fatter. This particular project is about blast mitigation. It's about using auxetic materials to make a textile which we can then produce a curtain material from which will act to mitigate blasts in an explosion situation. And auxetic materials, we believe, have particular characteristics will mean that they absorb energy much more effectively than the current conventional materials. The hands-on work of identifying which materials need to be used, the manufacturing and testing of the yarns and analysing the results of those tests is carried out by Dr Mike Sloan. The really useful thing about this research is that we're taking conventional fibres. So these are fibres, materials you can buy off the shelf. So you're talking about stretching materials, elastomeric materials like polyurethane, and then you're combining them with a higher-performance fibre, like a Dyneema. People probably heard of that. Also, ultra-high-stiffness carbon fibres. And it's the method in which we combine them that gives the auxetic effect. So it's conventional materials in a helical arrangement that gives the auxetic effect. And there's a number of parameters we can change. We're looking at the stiffness ratio between the two fibres and also the angle at which the second fibre is wrapped around the middle fibre. We've designed and built a purposely designed spinner here at Exeter and we can load our core fibre onto a single spool feed spool. That's taken up at the end on a, on a take-up spool. And we just program in the relative speeds of the actual spools and I will manufacture a yarn, very accurately controlling the, what we call the wrap angle, so how tightly the wrap fibre is wrapped around the core fibre. Then that yarn will then go back to the mechanical testing machine and I'll add on some extra um, hardware that we've got and we'll characterise its mechanical performance but also its shape change, how auxetic is it, when it gets this much longer, how much wider does it get then those most promising yarns will go forward onto our loom. The loom that we actually use is designed and sold as a craft loom. There's nothing special that we've done to the bit of equipment. There's no modifications that we've made. The only thing we do is insert our auxetic yarns to make an auxetic textile. And 
by using the computer controlled software on the loom, we can actually change the weave pattern as well. So we can go from a straightforward, what we call a checkerboard weave, right up to complicated twill weaves. So that's another parameter that we can change using the loom as well. A crucial part of the design process involves the computer modelling work carried out by Julian Wright, a research fellow at the university. If we want to make enough yarn to make a curtain-sized piece of fabric, for example, that will be several hours' worth of time. So that's a very expensive mistake if we don't get the yarn right at the design stage. That's a key facet of the computer modelling, is to be able to get the yarn right without actually having to spend hours making it and then seeing if it was right. We want to know it's going to be right when we've made it. The computer modelling at this stage is concentrated on the yarns, so we're not yet modelling the textiles and we're certainly not yet modelling the explosions. We're specifically interested in how will the yarn behave when we stretch it, how fat do we need to make it, how stiff do we need to make one or more of the components, what angle do we have to wrap the helical component at, how far can we pull it. One of the major parts of the modelling activity at the moment is to be able to predict the behaviour of the yarn from a knowledge of the two components. We know what polyurethane is like, we know what polyamide is like, for example. What we would like to know is if we wrap those two together, how will they behave? The major achievement so far of the research, certainly in the context of the computer model, is that we now have very detailed knowledge. We understand very well how to design a helical auxetic yarn. The tests that the team have used to put the material through its paces show that the shockwave from a bomb blast travels more than 1,500 miles per hour. Ken and Mike explain what the tests have shown. The very first thing you see is the light that comes from the blast and then a pressure wave arrives from the explosion and that moves the curtain inwards, as you might expect it to do. And then following on from that, you then get destructive damage. So if you have a glass window, the glass shatters and breaks. Now, what happens is the curtain is moved by the pressure wave first and because our fabric is auxetic, it opens out in a particular way and the curtain at that stage is not damaged by the blast at all. So the glass fragments then arrive after the pressure wave and are essentially captured by the curtain. And at this point, the curtain starts returning to its original shape. It stops ballooning out. It moves back in the other direction. And in fact, what we see is the glass fragments collected and essentially thrown back, almost like a trampoline effect, back out of the room. So you can see the energy-absorbing mechanisms taking place while this process is going on. And what's been particularly useful is to be able to do the tests with very high-speed cameras to see exactly what the mechanisms are so we can understand how the total process works. Not only have we watched the, the blasts under high-speed video, we've got pressure sensors before and after the curtains. And the two things that are really interesting are the peak pressures that we measure, but also the time duration. And when you take the area under that curve, you get what we call the impulse, and that's really the energy that's experienced as a function of the blast. And our preliminary data has shown the curtains give a 25% reduction in that impulse, so a 25% reduction in the energy that somebody the other side of the window would experience. So it's looking really promising, and you know we can only go forwards from here. Ken hopes it won't be too long before we see the fabric in general use. I would say that within five years you could see commercial fabrics on the market, providing they meet the promise that we believe they're going to do. It was Ken Evans, Mike Sloan and Julian Wright from the University of Exeter and they were talking to the EPSRC's Jane Reck. The EPSRC is the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, one of the big research councils in the UK. And you can actually hear a longer version of that interview, which the EPSRC have put on iTunes, um, that's in their Pioneer podcast, or if you go to nakedscientists.com forward slash news 
we've got a YouTube clip with some nice pictures of some of that top technology being discussed on our site, alongside details of all of the other news stories that we've discussed so far this week. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Sarah Costa Perry. And if you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Thank you, Sarah. Well, this week uh, we're looking at the science of the seriously very small nanoscale things, and we'll be finding out how they hold the key to powering the next generation of things like motor vehicles. Uh, still to come, we'll hear how narrow engineering itself can also be used to build better batteries in the future. But right now we're joined by Professor Stephen Bennington. He's from ISIS at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory, and uh, his work looks at how nanostructures could give us a safe and accessible way to store hydrogen. Stephen, hello. Hello, nice to be here. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Many people may wonder, because of all the hype about hydrogen, why is it such a wonderful fuel? Well, it contains an enormous amount of energy. And uh, also, when you burn it, of course, it just goes back to water, H2O. So it's a, a very clean fuel. So, it's a, in fact, it's an ideal fuel, fuel if we can find some way of getting it into a car and using it. Uh, although that assumes, of course, that you can make the hydrogen cleanly in the first place. True, exactly. It's only a store. It's not a fuel. You don't dig it out of the ground or anything like that, so you have to find some uh, method for, for making the stuff. But, of course, we're, we know how to make clean electricity. We haven't done it properly yet, but, you know, you can have wind power and you can have solar and you can have all these wave machines and you can have nuclear. And that you can use to make clean hydrogen, uh, which you then transfer to a different sector and burn it in your cars. Well, the, the emphasis really is on the word burn, isn't it? Because, as the Hindenburg showed us, there are one or two problems with using this wonder fuel as well. Well, in principle, it's not actually as dangerous as petrol. They've done these tests, and if you puncture your fuel tank in your car, the petrol flows underneath the car, sets alight, and then burns up through the car, and you're toast. But if you, but hydrogen, of course, burns upwards. And uh, so generally it burns away from you. So if you look at the Hindenburg, actually most of the people survived. Uh, you wouldn't have that in a plane crash. In a plane crash, you'd be dead. So it's not as bad as people think. It might have a bad image, but, uh, but you know, there are, and it is dangerous. Anything that can propel you along a motorway at 70 miles an hour is going to have a lot of energy in it. So it's not going to be perfectly safe, but, uh, but it's, it's safer than petrol probably. So why are people worried about hydrogen then? Why don't we just make cars with a big hydrogen cylinder in the back and people go to the garage, fill up with hydrogen? If it's safer than fuel, shouldn't be a problem. It's not the fact that it's uh, the fuel itself, but uh, the... If you want to uh, get enough hydrogen to fuel to your car, you need to pressurise it. And uh, typically the sort of tests that Toyota and other people have done so they can drive their cars 700 kilometres require tanks which have 700 bars of hydrogen, 700 atmospheres. I mean, that's a huge pressure. Yeah, and you can big, imagine, a big tank, I presume. It's a fairly big tank, but that, you know, it's not, that's not real a problem. It's 700 bars, and you can have 700 bars of air in the back of your car, and that's not going to be safe. You're going to have insurance problems, you're going to have licensing problems. It's not going to be a, a thing that a consumer is easily going to want to buy. So there's a transportation and a safety issue. So what, what, what are the solutions? Well, what we're looking at, well, a huge number of people around the world are looking at, are ways to store it within a solid material. And if you can, you can store uh, in a solid material at sort of ambient pressures and temperatures, you just heat it up slightly, hopefully at uh, lowish temperatures, then uh, the hydrogen is released and you can use it. And you can store concentrations in many materials that are more than in these high-pressure tanks. But they're, they're not ideal for many reasons. 
Oh, I get it. So you can make a material that enables you to store more hydrogen than you would get in a tank at those tremendous pressures, but at lower pressure. Yes. And therefore it's much safer. How on earth does that work? Well, it sits in the interstices of the atoms. So, uh, uh, well, there are various different methods, all right? So uh, one method is you take a very high surface area material, uh, and, you know, carbon nanotubes were mooted a few years ago, um, and, that, and the hydrogen then sticks on the outside of that. And the other method is one where you take one that, where the, the, the material soaks it up like a sponge and it sits in between the atoms of the material. Uh, so one of those two. And they, your approach? Well, we do both. Uh, we're, you know, we're kind of hedging our bets. The, one of them is going to work. The problem is that um, the material that uh, the high surface area materials, you have to cool the material down, so it's cryogenic, which is not perfect. You'd rather not have that in your car. Um, and the other ones, all the ones where it goes into the interstices of a normal material, they run at too high a temperature. And so we're looking at ways, nanotechnology is one of them, of bringing them down so that they operate at ambient pressures and ambient temperatures. So, for want of a better expression, you want to build some kind of molecular cage yes. which enables you to put the hydrogen into that cage, which will soak it up safely at low pressure mm-hmm. and enable you to store large amounts. Is this deliverable? Can we do this? Well, uh, yes, we think so. We've got prototypes of things that are, are kind of working. But nanotechnology is really the answer, and that's what we are concentrating on at the moment. So we're taking these materials that normally run at, say, two or 300 degrees centigrade, and we're making them very small, so making them to a nanoscale uh, material. And if you do that... I'm really sort of going, getting ahead of ourselves here, but uh, one of the things is it reduces the temperature at which it operates. But there's also another problem with many of these materials. In fact, almost all these materials that run at these high temperatures, they take an extraordinarily long time for the hydrogen to come out. And you can't wait half an hour when you put your foot on the accelerator to get off. You've got to, you've got to have it now. And if you make the material small, uh, then, of course, you, you, you reduce all the what they call the rate-limiting steps for the hydrogen to get out. You know, so it's got a large surface area, so the hydrogen can get to the surface, recombine and, and get away and diffuse away. When it's inside uh, the material itself, it doesn't have very far to diffuse. But the key point here is that it transforms in a different way. The, tr- the phase transformation from the hydride to the non-hydride phase is completely different. So uh, in a normal bulk material, you have a big lump of it. The outer surface, like the onion around the outside, might go to the hydride phase, and then it would massively expand... Uh, and you'd have this big phase boundary between the hydride phase and the non-hydride phase. This is m- meaning where the, the atoms of hydrogen are stuck on is the yeah, hydride phase. that's right. So you've, you've, you've transformed the material from one form to another. It has a big volume change. And, cha- and driving that phase boundary through your material is hugely energetic. It takes a lot of energy and it, dis- it really oh, I get disrupts it. So by shrinking it, it, it's much easier because you're doing this on the small scale throughout rather than trying to get big kind? blobs... Kind of. I mean, the two things. One is that if you have a big lump of material, that skin around the outside can stop the hydrogen getting into the centre. But also, on a nanoscale material, it just switches like that, clicks from one phase to the other, and it doesn't have any phase boundary at all. It just switches. And that can be very, very quick. It can go in, in seconds. And so that's why uh, it, it reduces the temperature which it operates, and it can make the hydrogen come out really fast. And that's been proven. And just to finish off, can you tell us what is the material, the magic material that's doing this, and how are you building it? There are a large number of materials, but uh, the technique we're using is called uh, electrospinning. Actually, not too different to what you uh, heard in the previous article, but if you um, extrude a small amount of a hydride material, surrounded by, you know, including polymer, out of a needle, uh, and then put a large electric field on it, it pulls a very, very fine fibre, a nanostructured fibre, uh, and it makes a kind of tissue-like material, and that material is, uh, is, it works. I mean, uh, you know, you can use various different hydrides in the, in the centre, and we're trying all sorts of different ones. 
and uh, you get the, 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 the reduction in the temperature and you also get this, this high-speed hydrogen release. And just to finish, how long before we see this actually being commercially viable rather than something in a laboratory? Well, we're setting up a company now, and hopefully in five years' time we'll have a product. So uh, that's the plan. You know, things can, can slip up, but that's what we're aiming for. So this is soon. I mean, that, that's fantastic news, isn't it, to think that you're actually going now commercially for this. So. That's right. But we're talking about prototypes in that time. So, uh, you know, in the same way that you can buy these prototype uh, electric uh, vehicles, battery vehicles, lithium-ion battery vehicles, in five years' time, hopefully these will be available on trial. Terrific. Thank you. Stephen Bennington from the STFC's ISIS Neutron Source. He's with us for the rest of the programme. So if you'd like to get in touch through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientist, or you can send us an email to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now, we all know what happens to water when it freezes. It becomes ice. But it does some weird stuff as well because the ice is less dense than the water and it floats. And there are still lots of unknowns about how this sort of transition from water to ice actually happens, especially on the nanoscale. So understanding this could help with a wide range of different industry applications, as well as our predictions of what will happen with climate change. So this week, Mira Senthalingam went along to the London Centre for Nanotechnology to meet Angelos Michelides to find out how his team are looking at how water turns into ice. There's really many, many interesting things about water. It's an everyday substance that we're, we're made of water. It's, it's all around us. Our earth is covered in water. But we still don't understand many of the properties of water at the molecular scale. And one of the processes we're trying to understand is just how water freezes, how individual water molecules come together to form little ice particles. Well, why does ice form in the first place? So why does water become ice? When we're below zero degrees, ice is, is simply more stable than water. Most of the times when water freezes, it happens at the surface of some impurity particle. And so it's the actual presence of these little impurity particles, maybe minerals or clays or dust particles, that actually allow you to nucleate ice. The water will stick to the little particles, form a little ice particle. So this is a nucleation process. And then once you have a small ice particle, just like in crystal growth, it's very easy for more water molecules to stick to the little crystal and to grow and to expand. So we really want to know how exactly, looking really at the level of individual molecules, how this ice, ice forms. More specifically, you look at this formation of ice on particular materials or solids, such as metals, rather than just how ice forms in the first place. Yes, so, so water really is one of the most in, incredible substances that we, that we have. It occurs in our environment in, in all three phases, solid, liquid and, and gas. And in the solid phase, there are 15 different phases of, of ice alone. And so you can imagine when, when you introduce some other material, like a surface, then you get all of this beautiful array of complex and interesting behaviour. How do you set about looking at this? One of the techniques that has really transformed our understanding of water at interfaces at the nanoscale is the scanning tunneling microscope. And this is an incredible technique that allows you to see individual molecules and atoms at surfaces. And then we will take this, this experimental insight that comes and we will try and build models to really understand at the molecular scale how these structures form, what structures form and why. And so what have you managed to find out so far then? Well, one recent example that, that was interesting because it went sort of against common belief 
was where we were looking at water on a copper surface and we noticed that water forms chains and when we did our models to understand what is the structure of these chains we noticed that the water is actually forming pentagonal arrangements so it's actually forming chains built out of water pentagons. This is interesting because we know from daily life that snowflakes come as, as hexagons and have this hexagonal motif and out of all of the 15 different ice phases none of them are actually built out of pentagons. If we go to another surface for example if we go to a palladium surface we don't form pentagons but we don't form traditional ice-like structures either we form something that looks like really beautiful rosettes and, and a lacy structure. So that's really quite fascinating that it just varies so much on different solids or different metals in this case. Now, you've also been looking at the formation of ice on clay particles, which is important for understanding our atmosphere. Yes, so when we're starting the the formation of clouds, this typically starts off with a supercooled water droplet. So a small, micron-sized water droplet that is already below zero degrees, but it, it won't freeze it's it's super cooled this freezing process is helped by a foreign substance which in the atmosphere quite often is a clay particle little nano-sized clay particles typically float about in the atmosphere They're, they get there from from dust storms in deserts so we're interested in in understanding these clay particles and how they make the rain and make the snow because w- without these agents that would nucleate the ice it simply wouldn't rain outside the, the tropics we require ice nucleation to have rain. So, I mean, it's clearly interesting to understand this simply to know why it does rain, as you've just mentioned. But what other applications are there potentially of knowing this about the formation of ice on so many levels or on so many materials? In the atmosphere, we want to know how ice forms, why ice forms. If we want to understand issues like global warming, to understand the impact of ice and clouds, and water in the environment and how it impacts upon, say, for example, the temperature of the globe. Aside from this this sort of environmental interest, there's all sorts of technologies who are interested in, in ice nucleation. One example would be the airline industry. Their planes, as they're flying through these supercooled water droplets at minus 30 degrees, it's incredibly useful that ice doesn't form on the wings, on the fuel lines, all over the planes. Like that plane, for example, that that crash-landed a couple of years ago at Heathrow, it did so because ice formed on one of the fuel lines, which cut off one of the engines. So, So there's an industry who are very worried about ice nucleation. Ice cream manufacturers are also interested in this. Ice cream doesn't taste very good if it's covered in little little icy particles. And going back to the to the atmospheric connection, it's incredibly important for these people who want to control rainfall, who want to so-called seed clouds to, to make it rain. There, they're interested in knowing what is an efficient material at make, making ice so as to make rain. And one of the most widely used materials is silver iodide because it has a structure which resembles very closely the structure of of ice. So that's quite a wide range of applications. So what's the next step in this research then in order to help this wide array of industries? At the moment, we can identify what structures form and we can understand why, but we're not at the stage that we can predict. So we would ideally like to be able to predict and to say, okay, you give me a material and I'll tell you in advance how it will behave, to try and identify the basic principles and the basic trends that control ice nucleation at interfaces. 
Who would have thought the most common molecule on the Earth within, well, a few orders of magnitude could be so complicated? That was Angelos Michalides. He's from London's Centre for Nanotechnology, which is a collaborative institute between UCL, University College London, and Imperial College London. Um, he was talking to Mira Senthalingam. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Caster-Perry. Still to come, we'll find out why soap bubbles are so colourful. That's in Kitchen Science, that's on the way. And in Question of the Week this week, we'll, we'll find out whether dogs really can watch TV. We've also heard from Ian Farr, who got in touch via our Facebook page. He says, if certain elements and compounds have very different properties in the micro world compared to the macro world, why is England so crap at football? And by the way, where are my house keys? Sorry, Ian, can't help with that. Uh, we also heard from Crystal Falcon, who's listening in Second Life. Hello to everyone in Second Life, who says, how much pressure did steam locomotives work under? We think several bar, but we're just going to check that. Sarah. Now, lithium-ion batteries are an essential part of most of our everyday lives. They're in our mobile phones, our iPods and our laptops, and they can be used for hybrid or electric cars and for storage of electricity from renewables like wind turbines. For each different job, you're looking at different properties, whether it's fast charging time, efficiency, safety or cost. At the moment, there's a trade-off between these properties, but nanotechnology could offer a solution. Professor Claire Gray from the University of Cambridge is looking at how. A battery comprises three main components. You have an anode and a cathode, or otherwise known as a positive or negative electrodes, and they're separated by an electrolyte, which in most lithium-ion batteries is organic solvent with a lithium salt that allows the lithium to shuttle backwards and forwards. Now, if I want to charge a battery very quickly... That means I have to get the lithiums and the electrons in and out of my particles in the electrodes. And so your commercial standard battery material in the cathode is lithium cobalt oxide. And that's a material that's many microns in size. And so when I charge the battery, I've got to pull the lithiums out of this micron-sized material. And that takes a long time. And that's why it takes you a long time to charge your battery for your cell phone or your laptop. But if I could make the particles smaller then I would be able to do this much more quickly and get a much higher rate of material. Nanostructures would seem to be the ideal candidates for this task, as their small size and large surface area would allow for quicker reactions, leading to quicker charging times. But it's not all plain sailing. There's some very good things about nano, but there are also some disadvantages. And one of the major disadvantages is the surface areas. And so if you have high surface area, you have a higher potential for side reactions with the electrolyte. And most nanomaterials and battery materials are not actually stable in the organic electrolyte um, you use in your batteries. And what happens is, as you're cycling material, they form a passivating layer, a coating of inorganics and organics on the surface of the materials that protect the material from further attack by the electrolyte. But now if you imagine you nano-size, you have a massive surface area, and so that whole decomposition to form this passivating layer eats up lithium, and you have a finite amount of lithium in your cell, so the more you eat up, the less you have to use in your battery application. Another disadvantage with nanoparticles, because you can have so many side reactions, if you have too many side reactions, the system can heat up, once the system starts heating up, many metastable materials can release oxygen. It's the oxygen that then reacts with the organic electrolyte. And at higher temperatures, that 
electrolyte can catch fire. And it's that electrolyte burning that you see in many photos on the web of batteries exploding. And so if you examine the pros and cons of nano, it's clear that nanomaterials and nanostructured materials allow you to get your lithiums and electrons in very rapidly. And so that's going to be a massive um, advantage when you want high-rate systems. But it's going to be a disadvantage if you're looking at safety. I think there are some solutions that will allow us to use nanostructures, but it's a very, very important design criteria that we need to build safety into our design. And Professor Gray's work is helping to examine exactly what those solutions to the problems with the use of nanostructures in batteries might be. We're very interested in working out the fundamentals by which battery materials function. So how do the lithiums come in and out of the materials? And we do that because if we understand how they function, we can use that to design better materials, and we can also use that to understand why sometimes they don't work. So what we've done recently that we're very excited by is we've developed a setup whereby we can make little batteries that are about the same size as hearing aid batteries, and we connect them up to a potentiostat, and that potentiostat is just like a battery charger you might have at home, except it's a little bit smaller and a bit more accurate. And then we make use of the fact that lithium have nuclear spin that you can see in an NMR spectrometer. And so that allows us to see where the lithiums are going as we charge the batteries. The exciting thing for us is that we can see functioning in real time of all the different components. And we can work out what each component is doing and how each component is influenced by things like charging fast. So when you're wanting to charge your battery for transportation applications, or if you're using a hybrid electric vehicle and you put your foot on a brake, that requires an extremely rapid charge, and that puts tremendous demands on your batteries. And that often in itself encourages the formation of side products that then may have negative consequences on how the battery then functions. And, and the bottom line is we can see this in real time, and we can try and devise strategies to prevent that happening. So if looking at function and structure and then trying to use that to then design newer systems or improve systems that both last longer and are more safe. And if you've ever seen a battery self-ignite, I'm sure you'll agree that safety is paramount. That was Claire Gray from the Department of Chemistry at Cambridge University. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry. If you want to get in touch on Twitter, it's at Naked Scientist, or send us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com. And in response to our train conundrum, someone asked us what pressure did steam locomotives work at. We heard from David in Fincham. Thank you, David. Mainline trains, he says, 17 atmospheres, Flying Scotsman, 15 atmospheres, and older models around 10 atmospheres. So there you go, Sarah. Many of the most colourful things in nature have a nanostructure to thank for their brilliant bright colours. Butterfly wings, birds' feathers, opals, even CDs show structural colour. Ben and Dave decided to look into structural colour effect that lots of us create regularly in our own kitchen every time we wash up the dishes. It's time for kitchen science again, but this week Dave has turned up with a bucket full of warm water and a bottle of washing up liquid, so I think it's my turn to do some chores. Dave, what are we doing this week? This is a lovely little experiment. You've probably done hundreds of times at home without even noticing it. All you need for this is basically some washing up water and a bottle. It seems that British milk bottles work really well. Basically a bottle with a slightly larger neck than normal seems to be ideal. 
So we have our washing up liquid and we have some hot water. So we'll make up some nice soapy water just as if we're going to do the washing up. And now that we've got some water nice and bubbly, what do we need to do with our milk bottle? Ridiculously simple. Just fill it up with water and then empty it again. So we'll submerge the milk bottle under the soapy water to make sure it fills up right to the top and then just pour it all out again. Now, Dave, what we have now seems to be a bottle that's full of bubbles. Yep, that was the aim of the exercise. The idea is to have a look at these bubbles, especially if you put them near somewhere quite bright. So you've put it by a window. It's not quite in direct sunlight, but immediately I can see a whole range of beautiful colours and patterns in those bubbles. There's the full range of the rainbow in there, definitely bright yellows, pinks, greens, blues, and they have a sort of marbled dancing pattern on them. What's going on there? Well, washing up liquid is quite an interesting molecule. It's got one end of it which really, really likes water and the other end which really, really hates it. So what it tends to form is great big sheets. So you have a sheet of water-loving heads facing in towards the water and on the outside you have the water-hating tails. So the bubbles that we've got here have actually got some water trapped in between them, but they must be really very thin. They start off thicker and then the water slowly drains out and at the moment they're probably a few wavelengths of light thick, so a few microns thick. So they're very thin bubbles and most of them we can see through but some have got these glorious colours in them. How do those colours appear? Well because they're very close together and only a few wavelengths of light apart you get two reflections, one from each side. Now because light's a wave these two reflections will interfere with one another If the difference in distance between the two of them is a whole number of wavelengths, then they'll add together and produce brighter light. If it's a half number of wavelengths, so one and a half, two and a half, three and a half wavelengths, those two waves, the peaks will meet the troughs and they'll cancel each other out and you won't see any light at all. So doesn't that just mean that we should see bright bits and dark bits, but not necessarily this full range of colours? Well, different colours have got different wavelengths, so the places in which they'll constructively interfere and destructively interfere will be different, so you see different colours in different places. And how does that change while the water's draining out? Because I can see now we're starting to collect quite a bit of water in the bottle. A few of those bubbles have now burst, and the colours do seem to be changing and moving. The colours tend to get more and more intense as you get to narrower and narrower films, until eventually you get to the point where it's less than a wavelength of light at which point it doesn't reflect at all. And the film, you can see that with this one, is almost transparent right at the top. You can't see it at all. So this very top bubble, I can see the line on the glass where it's connecting, but no, the bubble itself is really hard to see, and those colours have completely gone. But surely we know that light is just part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Is it doing the same thing just to light that we can't see? You probably could see colours in the top there, but in the ultraviolet, something with a shorter wavelength than what we can see. So we see beautiful colours in bubble films because of how thick they are and how that causes the light to interfere with itself. But how can we see the bubbles normally? Because they don't intrinsically have any colour, so shouldn't they just be invisible to us? If the film is significantly more than a single wavelength, you'll still see these reflections. So what you're seeing is the reflections on the bubbles rather than the bubble itself because they're so thin that there isn't enough water there to be any colour or anything. So the films are thick enough to reflect, but in fact so thick that we don't see this interference pattern, so we don't see the colours, we just see a shine. Yeah, that's right.
This is a beautiful effect and one that I'm certain I've created hundreds of times without even thinking about it. But is it something that's actually useful for us, knowing how this works? I've just been looking at your glasses and from the purple sheen, I think what you've got on there is an anti-refractive coating. This is a very, very thin layer of material they've put on top of the glass, which is a quarter of a wavelength thick. That means you get two reflections, one from the outside and one from the junction between the material and the glass. And the difference in distance that the light has to travel is a half wavelength, so two quarters in that reflection. They cancel each other out, so there's very, very little reflection. So you get more light through and you should be able to see better. But doesn't this mean that the anti-glare will only work for certain colours? Yeah, that's right. It's optimised for green light, which means that red and blue will reflect a bit, which is the reason why you see the purple sheen on it. So, doing some washing up can teach you all sorts of interesting things about bubbles, about bubble films, and even about how your glasses stay anti-glare. That's all for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more very soon. So, next time you're washing up and fancy a break, stop and look at the colours in the soap bubbles. We'll put pictures of this effect online at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science, where you can also find many more experiments which you can try out at home. Sarah, thank you. Uh, we also heard from uh, your mate, apparently, Anthony Carpen. You've got your own fan club. He's on Facebook, says, so still getting my head around auxetics. All very complicated for my non-sciencey brain, but Sarah's doing a great job. Seconded, Sarah. Well done. Sarah's first time uh, actually live here on The Naked Scientist. We're talking about the science of the very small this week, the nanoscale, and in a second we'll also find out whether your dog can watch or can see was on the television. Uh, but before that, a little bit more information on steam locomotives. Mr Wikipedia tells us that high-pressure steam locomotives operated between 23 and even up to 100 atmospheres. That's 1,500 psi, but they did need special design to do that. We're joined this week by Stephen Bennington. He's uh, from ISIS, which is the STFC's neutron source, but he's also an expert on how we could build the next generation of materials to store hydrogen to provide the power sources of the future. Esteem, got a question here from archivist Llewellyn, who's listening to us in Second Life, and, and is asking about the concept of spintronics and how nanotech might improve that. You probably better start by telling us, first of all, what spintronics is. It's like digital technology, so it's, it's using electrons, but instead of just having you know on and off as your two, two states... You can use the spin of the electron, so that spin can be up, down, and so you have much more information in there. But instead of using silicon, you can't just use silicon for these kind of things. You've got to use much more complicated uh, magnetic uh, materials, uh, and uh, you've got to make them nanoscale. You know, silicon at the moment is at 45 nanometers, so you've got to make these complex materials also nanoscale. And we do a lot of work on this at the neutron source, which is very good at looking at magnetic materials. And I've got another question here from Alex Mayer, who's in Aberdeen in Scotland. He says, will hydrogen-powered cars upset the balance of oxygen in the atmosphere? Shouldn't do, um, because it's recycling it. I mean, you're taking water, you split it up into hydrogen and oxygen, and, uh, and then you, re you recombine them again in your car. So the net effect is zero. Water vapour is different, perhaps, because if you're, if you're using these things to power jets up in the high atmosphere, and then you're depositing water vapour up there, then that's a greenhouse gas. So we have to think carefully about, uh, about those uh, problems. It's probably not a problem, but it could be. Uh, Stephen, Manya Olchoi, who's also listening to us in Second Life, says, is there hydrogen on the moon? I guess this is with an eye on future travel and transport and things. It's all very well as building bases on the moon, but are we going to have to transport hydrogen up there? Well, I know there's water up there. We've discovered that recently, or not me personally, but uh, as NASA, clever NASA <laughs> scientists have. But there's no hydrogen as far as we know. I've not seen any, any reports of it. 
Hydrogen will only stick on surfaces uh, either at below 20 Kelvin or in very thin layers up to perhaps about 50 Kelvin. And uh, most of the moon's uh, higher temperatures than that. There might be little dark areas where it's colder than that, but on the, on the whole, no. But the fact they found that water there with the, the mission to slam the probe into the south pole of the moon means that we can just get the hydrogen we need by extracting the water and electrolyzing it, presumably. Absolutely, yes. So it shouldn't be a problem. Um, Kyle Swanton got in touch and said, team of researchers from the University of Crete, led by George Fridakis, designed a sponge-like material made of layers one atom thick of graphene separated by carbon nanotubes with lithium in to help it store hydrogen. Is that similar to what you're doing? Well, we do work on uh, the, what they call intercalated graphites, which is graphites which contain uh, metals in between the layers. And the, the reason for doing that is that the metals charge up the, uh, the layers of the graphite, and uh, that means that the hydrogen sticks to it more readily. Um, so this theoretical work by these, by these Greek people was very interesting because it also spaces the layers of the graphite at the perfect distance to stick hydrogen in the middle. It but it's only a massive surface area. Uh, big surface area, yeah. Munya Olchoi also says... A light has to interact with our tissue for us to see it. Is it true that women have variants of the pigment to see in the red spectrum? The answer is yes, they do. The gene which enables us to see red light, in other words, encodes the red-detecting pigment in the retina, is carried on the X chromosome. And because women have two X chromosomes that they inherit from their parents, one from the mother and one from the father, they therefore have two genes in their body that are capable of detecting red. But during development, one of the X chromosomes is randomly inactivated. This is called X chromosome inactivation, because you don't want two copies of the chromosome active because you only need one, because men only have one copy. But that process of inactivation is random in the tissues, which means that some cells will be using one X chromosome, whilst other cells could be using the other X chromosome. And therefore, if you extend that to the retina, there will be some cells in the retina that are seeing red using the gene on one X chromosome, and some cells seeing red using the gene on the other X chromosome. And this means, theoretically, there could be different genes running in different bits of the retina, and therefore the perception of red could be slightly different in different positions on the retina in women, but because men have only one X chromosome, because our genotype is XY, we therefore don't inactivate an X chromosome and therefore use the same gene throughout the retina. And that's why you also find men who can be colourblind because they can inherit a red receptor that doesn't work, whilst women, because they have two X chromosomes, even if one of them has a defective copy, the other one is almost certainly still going to work. And therefore, in general, you don't find women who have colour blindness. So the answer is yes. Sarah. Now it's time for Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. This week, what can dogs see on TV? Hi, I'm Tom from Wales, and I'd like to know why dogs can't watch old-style CRT TVs and can they watch newer TVs like plasmas or LCDs? None of my dogs have ever watched an old-style TV, but they do get very confused when they hear barking coming from it. I'm David Williams, and I'm the ophthalmologist, the, the eye vet, as it were, at Cambridge Vet School. When we look at a, a picture on TV or a film in a cinema, it seems that we're seeing a complete flowing image. But actually what we're looking at is lots of individual frames. They seem to flow together because our eyes don't notice the change from one image to the next. Old-fashioned TVs and films produced images at about 24 frames every second. 
And that's fine for people because we have what we call a flicker fusion frequency, how quick the image needs to change for us, of about 16 to 20 times a second. But when we looked at dogs, we looked at them behaviorally, it's shown that their flicker fusion frequency is a lot higher than ours, maybe 40 to 80 frames a second. That means that when a dog's looking at an old-fashioned TV or a movie, it would seem to be flickering a lot. If you look at modern plasma screens and digital TVs, they renew their images a lot faster, maybe up to a thousand times a second. So theoretically, our pets should be able to see things a lot better on more modern TVs. But that's just a theory. Science needs the evidence, doesn't it? What's the evidence? If you type in dog watching TV onto YouTube online, you'll find only 4,000 results. And most of them will convince you that actually most dogs certainly react to animals easily on a, a TV screen, sometimes quite dramatically. But of course there, the trouble is we don't know what sort of TV is being used, do we? And how much there are other confounding variables, we'll say. Things like sound that the animal might be reacting to rather than just the pictures. So it's not much of a really good controlled experiment. But just watching the reaction of the dogs on those video clips on YouTube shows, to my mind, convincingly, that dogs are reacting to what's seen on TV, even if we can't be quite sure what they're seeing. I know what I'd like to say. If you've got a dog or a cat that loves watching TV and that lives fairly near Cambridge, would you contact me, David Williams at Cambridge Vet School, so we can do a bit more research to look further into this in a bit more controlled way? It seems likely that dogs can watch new, high refresh rate televisions and probable that old CRT TVs would simply have appeared too flickery for them to make out a moving image. And on the forum, JP said that their dog would certainly react to seeing and hearing another on a CRT screen. So much so that she'd try to run round the back of a TV to find the other dog. But from one sensory perception to all of them, and why are we wired the wrong way around? Hi, my name is Perm from Austin, Texas in the US. My question is, why is it that our left brain controls the right side of our body and the right brain controls the left side of the body? What is the advantage? Is this common to most animals as well? Thank you. I love your show. Please keep up the good work. Bye. Why is the left brain in control of the right side of the body? And why is no part of my brain wired up to any part of my body in any kind of useful way? Let us know the answer by emailing chris at thenakedscientists.com or by writing on the forum. And you can find that at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. Diana O'Carroll with this week's Question of the Week. You can find more Questions of the Week on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash Q-O-T-W. Right, well, that's all we've got time for this week. A very big thank you to our guests, Claire Gray, Stephen Bennington and Angelos Michalides, and also to our wonderful production team, Tom Simpkins, Diana O'Carroll, Dave Ansell, Ben Vowsler and Mira Senthalingam. Join us next week for our science Q&A special with a focus on the World Cup. We'll find out whether the thin air in Johannesburg is compromising players' kicks and we'll also be doing our very own experiment to find out how much it costs to fly an England flag or perhaps a flag of your own nation on the outside of your car while you're driving along. 
What's this do to your fuel economy? If you have any questions in the meantime you'd like us to solve for you, then do send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. Have a very nice time in the meantime, and goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. 